we're here to, to hear from the word here what you have to show us and we pray that we make Brian your mouthpiece that he would just be empty of himself and, and full of the Holy Spirit that he would take these words that you wrote so long ago and have them and explain to us for our edification and for our uh, equipment for your ministry we pray that uh, this, this word would, uh, would become alive to us that it would awaken our spirits we would be attentive to, uh, to the teaching that we have before us. So, Lord, I pray that you alleviate uh, any, uh, any uh, fears that Brian has and make him uh, confident and give him authority to, to teach from the precious word. Matt just said something that I want to uh, expound upon before we jump into 1 Samuel 17. So, if you want to be turning to 1 Samuel 17, um, this book that you're turning in or um, that you might be popping into your app. This is the living Word of God. Um, too often we treat what is about to take, take place as just a, uh, an oratory, continual, ritualistic event. But you're literally reading out of and listening to God's love letter to us, um, telling us how much He loves us, telling us how much we've sinned against Him, and nonetheless, he still runs after us. So, don't take this time lightly. Um, be actually listening to the spirit that is within you that will guide you out of your sin and towards Christ. Um, because that's what these words are meant for. Um, they're not meant for uh, trying to see if this is a good message or not. Because, frankly, I'm not a guy that has a good speech. Just not. Um, so... I'm praying that the Spirit would speak to you just as I was, I was reading it earlier this week that uh, God showed me some pretty crazy things. And even today showed me something that I don't even know if I can make it past the first one. Hopefully. Hopefully. So, let's, uh, let's get started. We're in the part of the story in the book of 1 Samuel where um, Saul has just pretty much not fully uh, physically being removed from kingship over Israel. However, the spirit of the Lord has been removed from him. He's been given a spirit, an evil spirit from the Lord. Matt preached on this last week, and uh, thank you, Matt, for um, expounding on that text uh, for us. Um, and we see David start to enter into the story, the son of Jesse. Uh, and now we're at a point in the story where the people of Israel, they have to go before and face the Philistines. This is that big old story that everybody always hears, David and Goliath, and everybody always makes out to be this awesome fit story, but it's so gruesome. And when we make it out to be some kid's story, to try to pop ourselves up to be like David, I think we're missing the entire point of the story. Because we're not David in the story. But I hope to begin to show that. Um, We need a David. His name is Jesus. But, let's get into the text. Um, I love this chapter, uh, and I hope you do too. So now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. So, a lot of odd terms, words, places in there. However, there's a couple things um, 
that I was seeing as I was reading the very first time. So the Philistines are gathering their armies. They're, they have it dead set in their mind that they're going to go to battle with the people of Israel. They are not going to let the people of Israel just live in peace. Mind you, they're not even going to let the people of Israel live in peace in their very own land. The place which they went to to go into battle against them, it says, it says, it says that it belongs to Judah. Now in the ancient Near Eastern times, a people, a community, a society, they gathered uh, value and worth and power by land and military power. If you didn't have land, you, you weren't really a people. You didn't, have, you didn't have value because you couldn't make your own crops. You couldn't provide um, into a foreign trade, if you will. And if you had land and you couldn't protect it, then you were likewise of no value because you can lose it tomorrow. So the people of Israel, they have Judah. God gave it, uh, gave it into their hands um, back in time. And now it's being challenged. It's being challenged by their enemy on their own territory. The very place where they find value and worth is being challenged by their enemy. It struck me in my mind as I was thinking it through. In America, we don't really understand um, value and worth in, in relation to land. Um, I would be just as satisfied with a, a tent over my head, frankly. I, I really don't care. Um, apartment building, it just, it just doesn't matter to me. So I don't have the, the context of value in regards to land like the people of this do. However, in America, we put value upon different things. Right? We find our value and our worth at times, wrongly so, in our looks. Right? Ladies. We want to find our value and our worth by what we think about ourselves and then what other people what we think that other people think about us. In that moment, you just handed your value and your worth over to the Philistines. In which they do not deserve to control that. They have no right to it. At all. Let me ask you. Who gives you your value and your worth? Somebody can answer. God. Good, pal. God is the one who gives us value and worth. So the Philistines... The dirty, rotten people who tell you, hey, you look really good. Or, hey, you don't look so hot today. They have no authority to give you value or worth. Your value and worth comes from the very person who loves you and has created you. And you know this. You know this. However, your heart, your heart deceives itself. And it tells you, that you aren't worth anything because of what you think that other people think about you. And it's usually based on an attribute that is very, very fluid, that can change in a moment. 
somebody is having a discussion with you and they change your thought process on an entire worldview, and people like you because of your worldview. Right, and now people will not like you because your world has changed. Your entire world has If you go outside and you get hit by a car, guess what's going to happen to your looks? Right, Johan. It'll be ruined. <laughs> You're a funny guy. Your looks are going to change. Your value then is based on something that is entirely changing. However, God is unchanging. And the fact that He made you in the image of Himself will never change. Now men, you find your value sometimes in power, authority. And if you feel like you don't have it, sometimes we, we move around the belt and we're like trying to intimidate people. Right? Or, sometimes men think that they've got value and worth by how many women they've been with. When you do that, guess what you've just done to the image of God upon a woman? Men. When you have looked upon a woman with that intent in your heart. Guess what you have just done? Sin. You have, yes, you sinned. You have then subjugated that image bearer of God to your unrighteous judgment. You have therefore become a Philistine. Didn't think that one through before. People don't like to be referred to as Philistines, but guess what? When you do that, you are. You're going into their territory. The fact that they're an image bearer of God, and you say, I'm going to control that. I'm going to control that by placing what I think a person is worth in their value. The moment that you go and you try to make a person's worth and value upon your own standards is a moment you become a Philistine. The only person who has the right to give worth and value and the only person who has the right to take worth and value is the one who created worth and value. That is God Himself. Now the question comes in, if you don't know that you're worth and value. Now these people knew their worth and value is by their land um, to some extent. And I'm, I'm saying that that's wrong. And we're going to see that it's wrong by how they are defined both by themselves and by Goliath. But if you do not understand that your value comes from the one who has created you, then my simple advice to you is to say don't compare you see you have two, two, two camps in a battle one is fighting for their land the other one is fighting to get their land while on their land and they're fighting by an unrighteous ruler 
So we go down to verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So you see there, right off the bat, and you're going to see Goliath state this too, right off the bat they're being identified by their unrighteous, pig-headed ruler. This is going to be blunt. Saul, at this moment in time, has continually throughout his kingship showed his unrighteous acts. He's been prideful, and the people of Israel have seen it. They've, many have fled from him. And yet they're going to still follow him into battle. So they're continually subjugating themselves to that which cannot give them value. You see, that all started when they said, we want a king like the other nations. It really blows my mind that many people still want some form of area of their life where they can be king of it still. When you realize you've never been a good king for yourself. I know I have not been a good king to myself. Guess who they should have been subject, subjugating themselves to, subjecting themselves to, right from the get-go. Yahweh, their Lord, the one who has been looking out for them from the beginning. Who has said, these are my people, Israel. I love them because I love them. Unconditionally. They don't have to fulfill good acts for me. But Saul's like, y'all, you got to come fight. you got to fulfill what I, I want you to. Whereas the Lord says, I love you because I love you. And I'm the one who will go to battle for you. And I'm the one who gives you word. I'm the one who's going to make you win. And yet they rely on Saul again. So Saul takes himself and his people. They line up. They were encamped in the valley. They line up in battle. They're, they're getting ready. They're squaring off. Two gangs getting ready to go at it. Turf war. Valley. And then we see here, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Picture this. Picture this. You've got this crew over here on a mountain, and you've got this valley, this deep valley, and you've got another crew over here, and they're looking at each other like, we're going to take you on. But you've got the Philistines, that they are recognized in that culture as being good warriors. And obviously, the people of Israel have fled multiple times. It's no, uh, it's no hidden fact. So they line up on one side and the other. Now let me ask you this, in your own life. Typically, people don't like the valleys. Number one, on a strategic point, point on, uh, on war strategy, it's just not good to be uh, the person at, at the lowest point, right? And then you start thinking of David in his psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? Before you get to that part, I will fear no evil. Now let me quote Julio. <laughs> Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I look around in my life and I see that nothing's left. 
Typically, people don't like being in the valleys because they realize that they're vulnerable. Nobody wants to walk through the valleys. Everybody wants to fake it and be up on a mountain. We're strong. We can battle you, Philistines. But the people of Israel knew that the Philistines were strong. They're not dumb. They knew they were strong. But they still did not recognize that it's the Lord who needs to go before them and fight. Not Saul. Not Saul. How often do you allow that to be a defense mechanism in your own internal conversation in your mind? You're going to pretend that nothing's, at, nothing's happening. And so therefore you try to stay out of the valleys and you want to stay up on your mountain and you don't want to actually face what's happening to you. You don't want to face the hurt and the pain and the sin that you've experienced in your life in that valley. Not only bloodshed happens in valleys. In valleys. Water flows. Beautiful plants happen in valleys at times too. And yet you don't even want to go down and see them at the end. Because you're afraid to face the fact of what it might actually be down there and being vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. Now I got a theory on why. You throw up these defense mechanisms, trying to stay up, putting on the fake Christian face, making it look like your life is, is kept together. So that way, you would seem normal. And so that way, you wouldn't actually have to uh, battle. Now we're made, we got, we got a king, his name is Jesus, we got King Jesus, we are warriors in the kingdom of God. Yeah, we're, we're, afraid, to, we're afraid to follow our king through our hurts. We're afraid to follow our king through all of the pain that we've experienced in the past. We're afraid to follow our king through those moments when people have said you're worth nothing, or where you yourself have said to yourself, you're worth nothing. We're afraid to follow our King into those moments and say, no, I am an image bearer of God and I have Jesus. We're afraid to follow our King and deal with our sin. Rather, we would sit in it. We're afraid to face our emotions, man. Frankly, I'm going to be real with you. I have not really talked to many men who actually deal with emotion. Just being real. I've talked to many a woman who know that they have emotions. And when you speak to them, they are then learning through Jesus how to deal with those emotions. Look, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Controlling your emotions does not mean suppressing them. It means leading them to Jesus. So men, you have emotions. Don't deny that. This is one of those things, you find value and worth in your power and in your image. You want to look strong, but guess what? Bible, Bible doesn't agree with you. When I am weak, therefore I am strong. You are trying to find your strength in your hard shell. You're up on your mountain, your defense mechanism, looking your sin in the eye. Knowing that Jesus can battle 
that for you, that he's the one that's going to conquer it, and yet you don't want to face it because you're too prideful. He's the one that's going to bring you through the valley and then out of, out of the valley. That's why Julio said, I see nothing left. And that's why David says, I fear no evil. Because my God is with me. Comforts me. He's my shepherd. Yeah, you want to shepherd yourself. Rely on that. Rely on the true shepherd, the great shepherd. So, I want to go further. Now you've got this situation. The Philistines that are on Israel's territory, uh, their turf. And you've got these two crews on mountains, super prideful. The Philistines are actually, they've got the upper hand when it comes to um, physicality and battle mentality. Yet they don't have Yahweh. They don't got the Lord. Israel, they actually have God on their side. However, they're completely forsaking Him. They're focusing on their earthly king, Saul, who has betrayed them many a time. And they're staring each other in the face. And then we get to verse 4. And there came out of the camp of, of the Philistines a champion. Now the word champion there... Um, it's only used in, in Hebrew towards Goliath. Uh, it means one of two. What that means is, he's done this multiple times before, where he's going to go down, he's going to get into the valley, he's going to challenge somebody, hey, yo, come get, come at me. Two people go, come at each other, one person makes it out. One of two. So he's done this before, and it's being recognized in that single statement. He's a champion, he's had victory multiple times in this sense where he himself alone has won entire wars between crew and crew, between country and country. So, the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, then it goes into describing him, whose height was six cubits in the span, it's like nine feet tall. <clears throat> he had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's 125 pounds, roughly. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 <coughs> shekels of iron. Now get this. What you just saw was this big, bad dude coming down, full of armor, full of protection. And he's pretty intimidating, right? So not only do you like to stay up on your mountain and think that you can deal with this on your own, but now, come to a moment where you've got to stare the deepest hurt in your life, that, that instance in your life that was pivotal. A moment where you completely started thinking differently about yourself and about others. And he's coming in front of you. And he's intimidated. And he knows exactly. So Psalm 64, verse 5, I believe it is. It says that the enemy has devised 
a diligent search in the inward depths of the heart of man. So that way they may destroy you. The very next verse says, but God. I always love this statement, but God. But God shoots his arrows back. He's already defending for you. Psalm 64, verse 5, I believe this. Or it might be 65, 4. Uh-huh. Probably 65, 4, because it's not 64, 5. So, you've got this scene coming on where not only all of your hurts and your pains in your past are before you, but now your very enemy is coming down into the valley, that very place you don't want to go. But now he's forcing the points upon you. And you're either going to be overcome by that hurt, overcome by what that person has been saying about you, overcome by what you have been saying about you, overcome by having feeling like you've got to suppress your emotions because you haven't dealt with your past, or you're being overcome because of your sin, because you haven't actually worked through the fact that you should not be doing X, Y, and Z. You shouldn't be looking on the computer at such things. You shouldn't be speaking about such people in gossipy ways. You shouldn't be showing aggression towards others. You haven't actually gone through these hurts and these sins. And so now he's like, I'm going to force the point on you because I'm your enemy and I want to overcome you. Now look at this. You've got this big guy, your enemy, coming at you, intimidating you, saying, I'm going to force the point. And at the end of that verse, it says, and his shield bearer went before him. Why is that different? What do you guys remember from last week's sermon? Shield bearer was the cleanup guy. The cleanup guy. He usually comes after, right? I think Matt even mentioned it in his sermon. It's really good to be the uh, the armor bearer because you uh, you're not on the front line. You're cleaning up. You're doing the the afterwards. You think of Jonathan and the armor bearer. Shout out to Tad, by the way. Our small group. The armor bearer. So it is seemingly much better to be the armor bearer, but now you've got this big intimidating guy, and for some reason. His armor bearer is walking in front. This is very peculiar because now I see he's not that strong. That 125 pounds of armor that's on him, yeah, it might weigh as much as me. It's probably what David was thinking. He's huge small, that armor didn't fit him. 125 pounds. It's just going to weigh him down. The armor bearer probably, he's going to get into something stupid. But I know that my leaders, like Jonathan, like Jesus, they go out before me and battle for me. That's what I would be saying in my head. Jesus goes out before us and battles before us. Yet, we see here that Goliath knows exactly the heart 
of Israel in this very moment. The very problem that they're struggling with, desiring an unrighteous king that's only going to lead them to hell if they continue to follow him. Look at this. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? So his question, he's like, You guys really think you're going to come at me? You really think you're going to win? Starts sowing seeds of doubt at you. You really think you're going to conquer this? You really think you're going to overcome this hurt? You really think that you're going to overcome this sin? How about this? So we know Psalm 110.1 says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a, it's a saying. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus said he's going to put all things underneath his feet and the last enemy is death. We know that his kingdom, Matthew 13, is expanding from mustard seed to full tree. Do you actually believe that Jesus is actually going to do and accomplish that which he said he's going to do and accomplish? Or because of your seeds of doubt that are sown by the enemy, by the Philistine, you say, well, that's never, Planned Parenthood's never going to, they're never going to shut down. Or do you say, people aren't going to come out of their homosexual lifestyle? Really going to say that to yourself? Or, let me ask you this, some of those who might be a Philistine, you're going to tell other people that? You're going to tell other people that God's not going to actually accomplish, Jesus isn't going to actually accomplish that which he said he's going to actually accomplish? We want to be careful because he's sowing a seed of doubt. And then he goes on. He says, Am I not a Philistine? So now he's drawing on his own fact and in intimidation. And are you not servants of who? Saul. Why is that such a bad thing? Servants of Saul, it's their king. Because they forgot the lesson of the Ark of the Covenant that the Philistine God bowed down before the Ark. And they wanted a king instead of a God that they already had. Exactly. They forgot their covenant with God and gave it up so that way they could look like the pagan nations. How often do you want to follow your own self into battle and trust in your own self, your own servitude, just like the pagans? I think that oftentimes we do that because we want the credit. If, if there's victory and we think we can win, we want the credit. We don't want to give it to God. If I rely on God, then i got to give God the credit. And I don't get it. And that's where we should be, but that's not where I think we are oftentimes. We want to get the credit. Right. So we let our pride get a hold of us. How often is that true, right? So we want to be like the others around us. So the atheist, they rely, the atheist relies on himself to be able to deal with whatever he's dealing with in a day. But as a Christian, you should be saying, well, I rely on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet, you act in your daily walk more like an atheist at times.
book, God was very patient with the people of Israel and was really patient with you. Just because you've done that in the past doesn't mean you need to do it today and tomorrow. So, they define themselves by being a servant to Saul. Goliath picks up on that. He's going to throw that at them. Saying, well, you're just a servant of Saul. And mind you, when he says that, they know and they remember, oh yeah, Saul has ran away these times. He's got all these problems going on. There's a crew of people that knew that Saul was giving some sort of crazy torment um, in the chapter just previous. And so then the enemy is going to use that against you. They're going to say, you continue to rely on yourself. Keep, keep going for it. But guess what? You've never been good for yourself. But it'll never point you back to the one who's actually going to conquer. He wants to continually, the enemy continually wants you to be looking away from God and at yourself. Because notice, he didn't say, you're not servants of Yahweh. He said, no, you're servants of Saul. They didn't, he did not want them to remind themselves of anything regarding their God, who will conquer. Alright, and then he says, choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. And this is really interesting. I did a we did a group Bible study. I think uh, Kyle and Heather part of it back when is uh, hold your God. And uh, the guy who was running it, he said, I'm going to completely butcher it and paraphrase it, but he was talking about how too often we rely on others' Christianity, others' relationships with God. Right? So he's, Goliath is also drawing on that. Well, let's just rely on our, on our hardest warrior and we'll identify with that dude. We'll let, we'll let him um, go to battle for us. Got two problems with that. Two, two problems. You yourself are then stagnant in not doing anything. And that's not to say, be guilty, you should be doing more. That's to say, you were made to be in battle with the king of kings in front of you. So of course the enemy wants to tell you, well, just pick your strongest dude and have him come out and lose. Not only that, the strongest dude will get all prideful and he's going to go out and he try his hardest to be powerful in and of himself. Now get this. While he is doing that, he's actually number one, taking away from your opportunity. He's not pushing you on to pursue Christ who is in front of you battling. But now you've just left your man completely alone. Your battle buddy, right? Now Christians, we're, like I said, we're warriors. We're made for war. When we don't go in war against the enemy, guess what we're going to do? We're going to war against ourselves and against God. That's exactly right. And again, the enemy is not dumb. He knows this. 
That's why he's telling him to do this. So when you go and you've got to start thinking about facing your own sin, you're either going to want to try to do it alone, thinking you're strong enough in your own power, or you're going to just rely on somebody else, maybe somebody who's got some wisdom in counseling. But they're not the answer. That is still not your Lord. I'm not saying the counseling is bad. Don't hear me say that. It is good to confide in somebody. But that's not the end game. The end game is Jesus. Like I said, I said it once before, Jeremiah 31 says, you will not need to say in that day, know the Lord, for they'll all know me. When I'm talking to somebody in a counseling relationship, my end goal for them is to not need me. Now think of that as being a leader, some of you out there who either are a father or husband in the home, or one day may be a leader of among people. Do not ever point your family to you. Point them to Christ. If you're a leader of a church, you're a pastor, you're a shepherd, if you're a leader, don't be pointing them to you. Be pointing them to Christ. Because guess what? You're going to fail them. I said this in a Bible study that we had a couple weeks ago on Father's Day. One day, it breaks my heart, but it will be true. One day, I will sin against my daughter. I will fail her. I am a sinful person. I will repent to her. But I'm going to show her the Father that's unchanging and completely loving, who will never fail her. That's who I'm going to point her towards. So that way, one day, when the enemy wants to come and says, just choose somebody. Go at, bat go at the battle all yourself. Or grab your dad, have him go at the battle for you. She'll say, no, 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 no. I'm going to go with Yahweh. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You've got nothing on him. Right? Alright. Let's continue. Verse 9. Then Goliath goes on and he says, If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Get this. Complete lie. Complete lie. We're going to get to it probably a week, maybe two, three, four weeks from now. I don't know. We'll see. It's a complete lie. Not only does your hurt and your pain want to give you some sort of false sense of peace, hey, you win. We'll be your servants. You'll have peace. Nope. If you go at the battle in your own strength, in your own power, or by the power of another human being, and not by the power of the Spirit of God, this is what you're going to get. A complete lie. Not actual true peace and healing. Mind you, Isaiah 53 says... And he was a man that was acquainted with sorrow and grief. And it says that he then took on our sorrow and our grief. And in turn, it says that he gave us peace and healing by his stripes and by the chastisement that was brought upon him. And we want to give that up for pride? This is Jesus that we're talking about. This is the healing that comes at the cross of Christ. 
In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian was carrying this really, really crazy burden. The moment that he laid eyes on the cross, the burden was untied. He wanted it off bad, and he tried. He tried diligently with tears. He tried shortcuts, thinking that, oh, like AA might say, I can just make coping mechanisms. Guess what coping mechanisms are? It's just another synonym for uh, defense mechanisms. You want to stay on the mountain? You don't want to face yourself in the valley? So coping mechanisms, those aren't, those aren't going to give you peace and healing. Peace and healing truly only comes from the cross. When you lay eyes on the fact that you have freeness in Jesus. So, we carry on. It says, but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and servants. Now get this. The enemy is coming at this presupposing that he will kill whoever is chosen. Because like I said, the first one's alive. If you read later on, they end up fleeing once the lives is dead. And the people of Israel chase him off and they plunder their goods. So there's a complete liar right there. And he comes in presupposing that he, and get this, it's because he's done it before to other people. So your good friend, your good friend who has had thoughts like John has brought up, your good friend who has struggled with self-image and self-worth and self-value, that when they tried to face it in their own strength has been conquered by it, has been killed by Goliath. And yet you want to follow down the same footpath. He's done it before to others. He's looking at you and he says, I'm going to kill you. I've got no problem with that. Because the enemy has only come to kill, steal, and destroy. Yet Jesus came to set you free. Recognize that freedom. So, he's lying. He's getting at the heart of their issues. And then he's saying, and I'm just going to kill you. Then you get into verse 10. It says, And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. He comes out of the gate saying, I hate God. By his actions, he's saying, I hate God. He's being prideful in himself. He's going after the people of God to try and plunder them and kill them. He wants the inheritance, the value and the worth, but he doesn't want anything to do with God. He just wants the inheritance that God has given these people. Link this back to what I said earlier on in this message. When you go 
and you steal somebody's value by defiling them with your eyes. Or when you go and you steal somebody's value by wrongly telling them or just speaking that their value and worth is in their image. Now a lot of people don't get this. A lot of people don't get this. Particularly women. Don't, don't shoot me. It is wired into your brain to be overly concerned about what you look like to yourself and before others. And so, it is also therefore immediately wired in the brain to therefore comment upon others in a like regard. So the very thing that you don't want commented about, you comment upon others. Why I said link this back is because what you're doing is you're telling them give your inheritance over to the enemy. Give your inheritance over to that which has no value in the word. And I'm saying, no, that inheritance is found in the fact that Jesus says, I am satisfied in you because of you. Or sorry, I am satisfied in you because of me. That's what he says in Isaiah 53 to 11. You find your value in the Lord in Christ. And then, not only that, so the inheritance that Jesus has is you, but your inheritance as a believer in Christ is Christ himself. Don't trade that for looks, for things that are passing and fleeting in this world. Don't trade that for a momentary time of sin because it's of eternal value. Eternal value. Get that, ladies. Your worth is of eternal value. Your worth is of eternal value. Nobody can take that from you. Only God gives that to you and only God holds that. No Goliath can take that from you. And here we see in the last part of the statement, he says, give me a man that we may fight together. And in verse 11, you see, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Whom does the Bible say we are to fear? God. And who are they giving that fear to? The enemy. Yet it's the enemy the demons who tremble in fear at just the name of Jesus. You see, in this point in time, now Israel, they were not getting it. They still had their eyes on Saul. But you've heard now, for long enough today even, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. And the demons will even bow and fear and tremble. This enemy, this hurt, this sin has no authority, no power in the name of Jesus. You have overcome it by the blood of the Lamb. That's what Revelation 12 says. 
So don't submit to the enemy. Don't be brought into fear and subjection to the enemy because guess what? You've got the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on your side. Who can separate you from that love? Who's been reading Romans 8? Quote. <laughs> Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Neither height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing. Not even yourself. Get that in your mind. Not even yourself. So when you do sin, and you do try to go to battle alone, or when you try to send somebody else into battle for you, because you don't want to deal with it, not even that will separate you from the love of Christ. So we'll start wrapping up here, going from verse 12 to verse 16. Now David, so now we've got this new guy, we've got Saul, the people of Israel, Goliath, the Philistines, and now David. Chapter 17, this is uh, now when he's coming in. We already know some things about David. In, uh, in chapter 16, he was being brought about to bring peace to Saul because Saul was given a, a spirit of, of divinity of evil. It's evil. Um, and so when the spirit of evil came, David was uh, supposed to come around and bring peace to him by playing the harp and whatnot. Right. Where's my harp in there? Um, so he's recognized as a man of peace, and yet his brothers, his older brothers, he's the youngest brother, young shepherd boy, and now his older brothers we see here. So now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. So his three oldest sons are warriors. They're going to battle. Now you've got young David, the guy who's a man of peace, a person of peace, from what you see already. And yet it's upon David's shoulders that the rest of this entire story is hanging upon. It's the shoulders of Jesus, it's the hands of Jesus, it's the back of Jesus that was struck, it's the crown of thorns that was put on his head. It was the wrath of God in the spirit realm that he bore upon the cross of Christ that the entire rest of history is hanging upon. And then his subsequent resurrection. It's Jesus. Jesus. All about Jesus. Change words. So, he's got three brothers. They're in war. They followed Saul, this wicked ruler, this guy who messed up on them a bunch of times. They followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema, or Shema. Uh, then verse 14, David was the youngest the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. It's really struck me. I was trying to think it through. I was like, why, why, is, why is God in his word 
putting that there. Number one, he's the youngest, so he's not not necessarily seen as the guy who's going to go out to battle. He's probably by his father. He's probably babied a little bit, right? I, I'm the baby of my family. My mom baby. Sure. Um, so he's baby. And then he's got his three older brothers who are uh, he's living in the shadow of. Um, however, they're following after an unrighteous ruler, perpetuating the path towards sin. And yet, and yet, you got the youngest of the eight brothers going back and forth from the sheep to the war field, from the sheep to the war field, from the sheep to the war field. Why? Why? Okay, so let's take a quick step back. You've got this war scene going on, you've got the valley, you've got Goliath, come at me, bro. And then, verse 12, it says, now David. That's a pivotal point. The people of Israel, all those who followed Saul, Saul himself, were not going to accomplish this. So now we see the entire story turning. Now David, and he's going back and forth. Now look at him. He's now a shepherd who is still caring for those sheep, yet he's still going out to the war and then back, caring for his sheep, leaving the 99 and going for the one. Leaving, going back to the 99, leaving the 99, going for the one. You see, this shepherd is looking out for his entire flock. I'm making a correlation here with Jesus, if you don't see that. Jesus wants the people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be freed from their hurt, their sorrows, their grief, their sin, their pain, and their fear. He doesn't want them to rely on themselves and other kings and other people. So get this, Isaiah 50, or sorry, not Isaiah 53. Psalm 51, verse 13. The very first part of Psalm 51 is all about David repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. And then in verse 13 he says, Cleanse me of my iniquity, so that way, that way I might teach sinners your ways. You're going to conquer Goliath through the power of the Spirit, through the cross of Christ, because Jesus is battling before you. When you do that, do not be silent. When Jesus conquers the hurt and the pain and the fear and the sin in your life, you do not be silent. You go and you tell others. Like I said, the entire rest of the story of the rest of history is at a crux upon the cross of Christ and His resurrection. He has conquered over sin and death. And you have overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. He has no power over you because you have submitted your entire being to Christ. So now is where I say, run to Jesus when you have hurt and pain. When you see somebody in hurt and pain, don't tell them to run to you. Don't do it. You're going to want to because you're going to want to fill some piece of pride in your own heart. 
Tell them to run to Jesus. Listen to them, but tell them to run to Jesus. Walk them through the Scriptures, because they may be so scatterbrained at the moment, but what you're doing is walking them through the Scriptures, pointing them to Christ, that Jesus, at the cross, is the only one that will do it. And then the final charge, if you're in a moment in your life where you're acting like a Philistine, and you're stealing value and worth from other image bearers of God by your own pride, I urge you to repent and submit to Christ. Run to the cross. See His forgiveness. Don't be a Philistine. Because guess what? That Philistine was likewise made in the image of God. That Philistine was likewise made in the image of God. But he wanted to defy God. I'm telling you, lay down your arms. Stop being at war with the king. Because guess what? He's your king too, whether you like it or not. Alright, let's pray. God, we thank you for your holiness, God. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your loving arm that is stretched out and ripped us out from the pits of hell, out from being a Philistine, God. You've ripped us from our sinful ways. God, you've comforted us. You've healed us from many hurts in the past. God, we trust in you for your sovereignty to continue healing us from the hurts that we have yet to discover and go through, God. God, may we not trivialize others' pain. May we not trivialize our own hurt and pain. God, may we not put on a fake face. God, may we just be real. May we be real with you, God. May we face our hurts and our pains through the power of the Spirit. God, empower us now. Don't let us, don't let us go down to the valley alone, but God, go before us in war. Be our shepherd, God. You are our shepherd. We shall not want. You make us lie down in green pastures and you tear these, God. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, I know that I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are our King. You are our Lord. And we love you and we run after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.